Hey there, this is Passing Notes with Ashley and Shanda. I am Shanda Sung and I'm a comedian. And I'm Ashley Morgan and I'm a farmer. We have been best friends since we were nine years old. Welcome to our show where we teach each other all kinds of things that cover our wide range of knowledge and interests. And today is our Labor Day episode. Yeah, Labor Day, the end of summer. Yeah, we love a timely theme. Yeah, I like having a theme that goes along with whatever holiday is next. <laughs> Bad we like dads. to stay current. Yeah, Labor Day, <laughs> Pride. Pride Month. Yeah. So yeah, we're going to talk about Labor Day, which was begun because of labor union support. So I've never been in a labor union. I have. Yeah. yeah. I spent 10 years in the airlines and you had to be part of the union to join the the work crew there. And yeah, uh, I have mixed feelings about a union. I mean, I get it. You know, they're there to represent the workers. They're there to keep the company from taking advantage of them. But you could also be paying union dues for a bunch of useless people to do nothing. (laughs) In your personal experience. Yeah. uh, Didn't didn't see a lot of tangible benefits, I guess. Uh, No. In fact, I only really used them a few times. Mm -hmm. And the one time I had to have a conference call with my management because I had called off fatigued Mm -hmm. from a trip because they kept pushing my showtime back. I was supposed to start at like 10 a.m. And I was on my way to the airport. I was almost there. And my scheduling called and said, oh, hey, your flight's delayed. Your new showtime is one o'clock now. I said, oh, okay, great. So I went back home and just kind of lounged around and then went back to the airport a couple hours later. I was like halfway to the airport and they said, oh, hey, your flight's delayed by a couple more hours. And this happened like three times. Hmm. I was on my way to the airport. (laughs) So it's like 10 p.m. Our flight is not going to get home, back home until like 3.30 in the morning. Yeah. I was supposed to start my day at 10. And so I said, there's no way I'm going to make it till three in the morning. No freaking way. I'm exhausted already. So I called in fatigued. And that's yeah. that's a legit call. You can do that. But you have to fill out all this paperwork and they're going to question you. Yeah. Well, the company's reasoning was, well, that shouldn't count as a fatigue call because you should have taken a nap all day. <laughs> and I was like, well, you were delaying it like every couple hours. So couldn't do that. Yeah. And I had to have this conference call with management and the company and I had to have my union rep there with me just to make sure things didn't go sideways and they try to fire me for this or whatever the deal was. I sat there and I pleaded my case and I read the report that I had filled out of exactly all that happened and they questioned everything that I said in my report and the union person just sat there. Yeah. And I finally in the call was like, hey, union rep, you going to say anything? (laughs) And he's like, no, you're doing a great job. (laughs) Nice work. Keep it up. Really glad I paid my union dues every single paycheck (laughs) for you to just sit there and let me plead my own case. (laughs) (laughs) You're just probably like, I don't want to talk too much. Um, I'm on the toilet and it's real echoey in here. (laughs) Yeah, probably. Well, it's good to hear that the airlines treat their employees about the same as they do as their customers. So, Oh, boy. It's kind of... Some solidarity there. 
of like Boy, howdy. completed delays. That them saying you should have just taken a nap had real just sleep when the baby sleeps energy. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, yeah. It sounds yeah. so easy. Okay? Like I'm supposed to do that. Right. When am I supposed to get anything else done? <laughs> just sleep when the baby sleeps. Oh really? Yeah, I'd love to. <laughs> Good idea. Wish I had thought of that. Good job. Thanks, Captain Obvious. I really, really appreciate that useful input. <laughs> nah, man, the airlines, they were not great. I mean, it was fun to do when I was in my 20s and didn't really know any better. And then once yeah. I started to get older and wiser, I realized that they don't pay based on your performance. They yeah. base it on your seniority and your longevity. So if there's a lady who's been here for 15 years and she looks like shit and she's treating the passengers like shit and she's mean and she doesn't do a good job doesn't matter she'll get paid more than me even if I look nice and act nice and do my job mm. well once I kind of wised up to that's what was going on a I was pissed about it yeah and then b I kind of stopped giving a shit yeah and so I, of course I started wearing flats and pants and very little makeup and You'd be lucky if I brushed my hair. I mean, it was still <laughs> nice to the passengers because if I'm rude to them, they're rude to me and that makes my day harder. Yeah. But our rule was you have to do a walk through the cabin every 15 minutes. Just mm -hmm. make sure nobody needs anything. Make sure everything's okay. Collect trash, whatever. I'd go back to the back and I'd sit and I would pretty much watch my clock and be like, okay, I'm not going any sooner than 15 minutes. <laughs> I'm not doing anything above and beyond. I'm going to get yeah. a lot of reading done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I am in no way going the extra mile. No, absolutely not. So yeah. it wasn't worth it Here to I, me. I assumed that the pay grade was based on how funny your cabin announcements were. Oh, man. Let me tell you something. <laughs> Everybody loves those like Southwest flight attendants. Except are... comedians. Oh, we don't like it. And other flight attendants. I had right. a lady. So we were not that way. We were a small regional airline. We worked for United and Delta and American. We just yeah. went with the standard basic announcements. Just follow the status quo. Don't do anything obnoxious. Yeah. Just get through your day. Well, we had one lady who thought she was hilarious and charming and did all these jokes. And to the passengers, sure, it was yeah. funny. But when you're doing four flights a day, four days in a row, yeah. that shit gets old real fast. <laughs> yeah. Because it's the same jokes over and over and over again. I don't want to hear that. You giving these announcements is just that much more time I can't be watching the movie I brought. <laughs> So, so move it along oh, so gosh. I can get to the entertainment I prepared because it's not you, lady. Nothing makes Tyler more crazy, especially <laughs> when pilots do it because he's a pilot and he'll get on and he'll be like, uh, yeah, ladies and gentlemen, the weather is 74 degrees and cloudy and we'll be there in 20 minutes. And like, that's it. Yeah. But there are those pilots that are like, oh, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we are currently uh, cruising over Phoenix and, uh, you know, that's where my mom was born. And uh, you're like, just get, let me get back to my movie, please. Is that why he edits out all of our ums? Because he's like, I can't take it. Just and if I it. could do this to everybody all the time, I would. <laughs> uh, well, 
We're going to talk about Labor Day today. <laughs> uh, thank you for joining our podcast. Uh, looking at about an hour airtime. Uh, it's going to be a really fun show. So uh, sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. <laughs> that was lovely. Yeah, I wonder, when you get interviewed to be a pilot, do they test your vocal fry? Like, let me hear it. How is it? Uh, it's not it's not fried enough <laughs> not, not fried enough that's not what we do here <laughs> take how that long... weak sauce over to spirit <laughs> yeah how long can you hold out those uh <laughs> <laughs> if it's not a solid 30 seconds we don't want it <laughs> yeah well i think i'm gonna go first yes since this is our labor day episode i am going to talk about the book, The Jungle, by Upton Sinclair, and how this book changed the meat industry in the early 1900s. All right. I've heard of it. I have not read it. Yeah. Follow along because it applies. Okay. <laughs> it does. I believe I swear. you. I have complete faith. <laughs> Any excuse to talk about a book, you nerd. I know. <laughs> and I started rereading it over the weekend. I'm almost done. I'm about 75% of the way through it. And I've read it before. So I know what's happening, but I'm rereading it. And I love it. I forgot I love this book. But let me tell you a little bit about Upton Sinclair. He was born in 1878 in Baltimore, Maryland. And you know, we love people from that time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Bread and butter. He graduated high school in 1897 and went to Columbia University. I think he studied law but he was more into writing, mm -hmm. poetry. He was a political activist. He very vocally supported socialism. So after he graduated, he became a journalist for the socialist publication called Appeal to Reason. And in 1904, he spent seven weeks undercover at a meatpacking plant as part of an assignment for this publication. He published his findings as part of an ongoing series they had mm -hmm. that had pretty good success. So he decided to write a novel about his experience there. So in 1906, he published The Jungle. And it's meant to be about the city. Mm -hmm. You know, it's Chicago. It's post-industrial revolution. It's the meatpacking industry. It's miles and miles of factories and stockyards and cattle and it's grime and dirty and unsanitary. And it's, it's essentially a story that follows a family from Lithuania. So is this a novel or is it nonfiction? It's, it's a novel. It's okay. loosely based on actual events. Okay. All right. So he just created these fictional characters to live through all these things he saw. Okay. So they are an immigrant family from Lithuania. They show up to America with the promise of riches and the American dream. And ideally, the main character, his name is Jurgis, and he's this big, strong, young man. And he's got a wife. And he brought with him his elderly dad and a couple of cousins that are adult cousins and an aunt and then a handful of kids. So it's this nice big family. Mm -hmm. And the idea, the dream for them is that Jurgis himself will be the main breadwinner. His male cousin will work too and help provide. His father will maybe work an easy job into retirement. The women will stay home. The kids will go to school. Mm -hmm. And that's his dream for coming to America. 
And everyone that he had talked to in Lithuania said, go to Chicago, go to the stockyards. That's where they're making the big money. And so when they get there, it's dirty. It's dingy. They're living in this filthy boarding house, roaches, bed bugs, fleas, everything. It's terrible. He didn't realize that lodging was going to be a problem, especially for his huge Mm -hmm. family. Yeah, they came with some money, but... They couldn't rent the whole time, so they bought a house and kind of got swindled in that deal. And then to find a job, it was literally hundreds of people, men and women, standing outside the factories. Mm -hmm. And the boss would come out and say, "Okay, I got room for five. You, you and you get in there. Mm. And Jurgis was a big, strong young man. He got chosen right away. Mm -hmm. So the beginning, they're feeling pretty good. It's, you know, kind of a reality shock when they got there, but... Sinclair goes on to talk about how the work environment was not climate controlled at all. So in the summers, they're sweltering. In the winters, they're freezing. They're standing in water and their feet are cold. Or if they get in the winter when they would get sweaty from working Mm -hmm. so hard, if they leaned against a pole, they'd freeze to it. If you're in some of these basement factories where they're packing canned meat or making the sausage or wrapping the hams or whatever else, they didn't see daylight for hours. Mm-hmm. And in the winter, you wouldn't see daylight at all. You're going to work before the sun came up. You'd work all day. You'd come back home when the sun was already down. Yeah. And it started out where Jurgis gets a job and a couple of the others, well, then they realize, well, we bought this house and yeah, we have to pay the mortgage on it. But there were other things that the agent never told them. Like- insurance, Mm -hmm. interest. Now you have to furnish this house. Now you have to do all this other stuff. And it's adding up. And what he didn't realize, the cost of living in Chicago was expensive. So yeah, Mm -hmm. you're making high wages, but all your money is going away. Yeah. And so Sinclair paints this terrible, but vivid and beautiful (laughs) image of what it's like to live throughout the seasons in this dirty, dingy kind of hellscape almost. Yeah. They can't catch a break. Yeah. Their working conditions are unsanitary and unhealthy. In the meatpacking plants, on the, on the kill floors, they're working at such a high pace that men are slipping and falling and breaking their legs or mm-hmm. their knives are so sharp and they're cutting on this assembly line where one guy stands there and cuts the same cut on all these different carcasses. He maybe slips and cuts his fingers because his hands are cold and numb or... Mm-hmm. It's a hot day and the fat is melting and it's making his knife slip. Well, he cuts a finger off or cuts his palm and now he gets blood poisoning because it's so unsanitary in there. And yeah, men are tracking mud in on their boots and they're spitting on the floor and they're coughing out loud and open. And it's just a cesspool. This is meat. Yeah. It's bad for them. It's bad for the people who are buying that meat. Yeah. And... He also goes on to describe that home life isn't much better because the sewers just run underneath the house Mm -hmm. or into the streets. There's no actual sewer containment. All the food that they buy is somehow adulterated, whether Mm -hmm. it be canned meat that has toxic chemicals in it to keep it from smelling rancid or the milk is watered down and is almost a blue color because they put chemicals in it to keep it from spoiling Mm -hmm. canned peas have some sort of chemical to make them green greener Mm -hmm. you know so everything about them is just sickness and they don't have enough coal to heat in the winter 
they can't ever get warm, they can't afford clothes. And it's just this cycle of poverty and despair and not being able to dig yourself out of a hole because while all the adults are working, it's great. Sure, mm-hmm. they can pay their bills, but the factories would close with no warning. Mm-hmm. They'd just show up to work and there'd be a notice on the door, closed until further notice. Mm-hmm. If you got injured and were out of work for a couple months, your spot wasn't guaranteed. Yeah. The bosses would cut the wages without warning. They had these weird rules about if you showed up a minute late, you didn't get paid for the hour. But if you mm-hmm. worked a minute late, you didn't get paid for the hour. Mm. So they would take advantage of the workers. Yeah. And there were unions at the time, but they weren't really able to do much. The packing plants were so big and so powerful. Mm-hmm. And the labor supply was way greater than the demand. People would stand yeah. out in the cold for hours waiting to be picked. Yeah. I tell you, you're really making this sound like a fun read. I'm going to tell you right now. Curl, it is. curl up on the beach, you know, the cocktail. Oh, no. No, no, no. <laughs> it is It is a sit by the fire in the middle of winter, read this book, and feel really grateful that you live the life you do. Because yeah. this book, yeah, he paints these very vivid pictures of this life, but then the characters just get hit with blow after blow after blow. Yeah. And I'm not going to spoil it for you, but because I want you to read the book. It's it's worth it. I love it. Read the book. Not So I'm not going to spoil it. But it's a big old bummer. It is a total <laughs> bummer. <laughs> it's a total bummer. Be warned. <laughs> but it's only like 300 pages of bummer. So. All right. <laughs> but I do want to read a passage from it so you can get an idea of how the sausage is made, I guess. Oh, this is Passing Notes Presents audiobooks. Yeah. Ooh, here we go. This is a passage from uh, chapter 14. There was never the least attention paid to what was cut up for sausage. There would come all the way back from Europe old sausage that had been rejected, and that was moldy and white. It would be doused with borax and glycerin, and dumped into the hoppers and made over again for home consumption. There would be meat that had tumbled out onto the floor in the dirt and sawdust, where workers had tramped and spit uncounted billions of consumption germs. There would be meat stored in great piles in rooms, and the water from leaky roofs would drip over it, and thousands of rats would race upon it. It was too dark in these storage spaces to see well, but a man could run his hands over the piles of meat and sweep off handfuls of dried dung of rats. These rats were nuisances, and the packers would put out poisoned bread for them. They would die, and then the rats, bread, and meat would go into the hoppers together. There were things that went into the sausage in comparison with which a poisoned rat was a tidbit. (laughs) We had sausage for dinner. We did too. (laughs) (laughs) Two hours ago. So (laughs) gross, right? That's not even the grossest passage in the whole story. (laughs) Yeah. That was just a very colorful one. Yeah. So he wrote this book with the intention of bringing to light the deplorable conditions in which the labor force of Chicago had to live in and work in. And Mm -hmm. the way they were treated, especially the immigrants, because there were a ton of immigrants coming through there. Mm -hmm. And yet people became more upset 
by the handling of the meat than the handling of the people. Yeah, of course, because this is what what affects me. Exactly. And Upton Sinclair has this pretty famous quote on the matter. He says, I aimed at the public's heart and by accident, I hit in the stomach. (laughs) (laughs) Now, because there was such an outcry about this, there came a lot of reform. Mm hmm. In 1906, there passed the Federal Meat Inspection Act, which ensured proper labeling. They had to tell you if there was rat and poison bread. (laughs) If there was rat meat in your sausage, they had to label it as such. (laughs) Of course, sanitary working conditions and then anti and post-mortem inspections. Mm. For the meat or for the workers? (laughs) (laughs) I think for the meat, but there really should have been for the workers, too. There were stories in the book, I wouldn't be surprised if they were true, that, yes, they had meat inspectors there, Mm -hmm. but they only worked up till five Mm o'clock. Well, if there was animals that didn't pass inspection, pigs that were diseased, cows that had broken legs and were called downers, after the inspector left, they do like an after hours shift. Mm. process those animals and just either send them down to sausage or mix them in with the rest. And so you'd have diseased animals in with clean animal carcasses. Yeah. So, yeah, they really cut down on that. They really put a lot of reform in. And then for the next 50 plus years, a lot of acts went into Mm -hmm. place. So it started with the Federal Meat Inspection Act of 1906, which led to the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906, same year, mm-hmm. followed by Agricultural Marketing Act, 1929, Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act, 1938, and the Poultry Products Inspection Act of 1957. All of those come down to making sure that the animals that come in are healthy, mm-hmm. that the meat is processed in a way that's clean mm-hmm. and sanitary. That is beneficial for workers. Not too bad, anyway. Not as bad as it was. Yeah. And that everything that's on the label is actually what's in there. And mm-hmm. you're not getting borax and rat poop and people's fingers in there. <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, it just really makes you lose faith in humanity. Not that everything doesn't, but... <laughs> You would assume that if somebody gets into the meat industry, they're going to want to put out a good product just because that's the responsible thing to do. And you don't want to make your consumers sick on purpose. And you don't want to do these things that are horrifying to read in a novel, let alone to experience in real life. But people don't give a shit. (laughs) And so there have to be these acts and things that strong arm and force these industries into doing things that you would think were were just a matter of human decency. Yeah. And this was, you know, right after the Industrial Revolution, Mm -hmm. Henry Ford style assembly lines were a big thing. Workers were disposable. They were dealing with so many animals. It was about the bottom line and the... Speed, speed, speed. Speed, speed, money, money, get it Mm -hmm. out the door. That was the big thing. It was this huge corporation Mm -hmm. that pretty much, and it's kind of this way today, it's one big company that owns the majority of the packing. Mm -hmm. And when you get so big, you can afford 
to have an inspector on full time. Yeah. But when you're dealing with that kind of volume, stuff falls through the cracks. Right. So you have to have those people. Yeah. Whereas when you're a small producer like Tyler and I, we process our own chickens. Yeah. There's exemptions in Ohio that if you're under a certain amount, you can process your own on farm. You just have to have the proper labeling, proper licensing, all that stuff. We have all that. But you're going to notice if you have a sick chicken. Exactly. <laughs> you know, because it's one of 20. It's not one of 20,000. Right. Exactly. And I raise these animals from the very beginning. I mm-hmm. raise them from chicks. I dispatch any that are unthrifty, which is rare, even as adults. Unthrifty. Some... I'm just seeing I'm just like imagining a chicken like wearing a like a fur coat or something like, <laughs> no, no, you are not no. thrifty enough for this farm. Not thrift shop. <laughs> not thrift shop. Thrifty. <laughs> Unwell. So yeah. we don't let sick animals into our system. It's rare. It's rare that they are. That's Mm -hmm. never really a thing. But if we see anything that's remotely questionable while we're processing our chickens or our turkeys, Mm -hmm. we have this saying, when in doubt, throw it out. Yeah. I worked at the meat processing plant at Ohio State. Mm -hmm. Yes, there is a meat processing plant. (laughs) It is literally called the meat lab, we call it, or meat sciences laboratory. When I went to college, I majored in animal science industries. So I wasn't pre-vet. I was all about the industries. I double minored. I had a minor in farm management, so the business side. And -hmm. then I had a meat science minor. And through that, you learned the biology and chemistry of muscle. Mm -hmm. And then you also learned about the processing of animals and all the different cuts of beef and pork and all that. So when I worked there, we were we had a kill floor. We had a slaughter facility. We had refrigerators where you'd hang the carcasses. We had tables Mm -hmm. where you would cut up steaks and roasts and you could grind them. We had a processing area where you made sausage. Yeah. But we knew everything that was in it. Yeah. Nothing was scary. It was all beef hot dogs. It was all pork. It was whatever. And when I worked there, it was very clean Mm -hmm. and everybody had a place and there was an inspector there all the time. And it was slow paced, mostly because it was, this is a teaching facility. Right. So you kind of have to go at the pace of teenagers who don't know what they're doing. Yeah. And I never really thought much about it. And this book was actually brought up in one of my meat science classes. Yeah, I'm sure it comes up all the time. <laughs> yeah. They're like, you got to read this. Listen to all these acts. These are These are why we follow the rules that we do. Right. This is why we have all these different labels. This is why you're not allowed to do certain things. This is why the inspector has to be there and he has to look at stuff before you can move on to the next thing. This is why. Mm -hmm. Because this is what it was like. And that's gross. And we're not going to do that again. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I've been around meat processing. So to read this is kind of special in my heart. Because I'm like, ew, gross. That's not how we do it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good. That seems so different than it is now. That's heartening. I appreciate that. That you're like, no, no. (laughs) You're not like, this seems familiar. That would be concerning. (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, I've totally spit on the floor and thrown some rats in the sausage. (laughs) Like, yeah, no, that's fine. No, uh, one, one other fun fact before I finish up here. So Upton Sinclair died in 1968 at the age of 90. Mm-hmm. And you know how we love yeah. 
we love our linear timelines okay (laughs) we love this but if you think about it all these acts and i just named a few Mm -hmm. but the last one that i read was 1957 yeah and that's not the last one that was made obviously but he lived to watch all of this reform yeah he was alive to watch the meat industry change its practices yeah that had to feel good and really really do better not not always great but do better not only by the animals but by the labor force mm-hmm. and by the consumer yeah so quite the activist he did a lot it's uh it's not very often that somebody from that time period lives to see the impact that they made yeah a lot of times that stuff comes long after they're gone so that is nice Good job, Upton. He was a pretty young guy when he wrote that book. Mm-hmm. He would have been in his, he been 28, I think. I don't know. We've proven time and time again, math is not the strong suit on this <laughs> show. <laughs> That's true. We're book nerds, all right? Yeah. We are readers, although we have proven time and again that vocabulary is not really our strong suit either. So I don't know what our strong suit is, but I'm sure we'll figure it out soon enough. (laughs) One of these episodes. So highly recommend Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. Yeah. And how it applies to Labor Day by reforming the labor force of the meatpacking industry. Yeah. There, bringing it, bringing it full circle. <laughs> and congratulations to our vegetarian and vegan listeners for making it this far in the episode and on confirming the correctness of your personal choices. Yeah, good call, pals. Like, wait, <laughs> keep it up because this this is gross. Yeah, <laughs> although that's not how it is today. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of rules in place now to keep that kind of environment from being the the norm. Yeah. So. All right. Well, that's it for me, but I'm right. super excited for what you have to say. I can't wait. Yeah. But first, we're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsor. Okay, we are back. And I am going to talk about the history of Labor Day as a federal holiday. Oh, cool. That's yeah. probably You probably should have gone first. <laughs> I know. <laughs> that's all right. We'll bring it home. It's good. We're all, yeah. So Labor Day, obviously... A holiday that we all know. And when you ask anybody, including myself, prior to researching this episode, if you had asked me, what is Labor Day about? I would have been like, you know, like unions and labor movement and stuff. (laughs) But as far as the specifics of events that actually happened that made it become a federal holiday, I couldn't have told you the specifics. But now I can, so I will. Ooh. (laughs) Yeah. So what really was the main event that had President Grover Cleveland actually declare Labor Day a federal holiday was the Pullman strike of 1894, in the summer of 1894. I thought you were going to say Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. That's what I thought thought you were going to say. Man, that book did everything. (laughs) It was also in Chicago, 1894, but it had to do with railway workers, Mm. not the meat industry. So... We're related. Chicago, late 1800s, a hot mess. Yeah, apparently. (laughs) No bueno. (laughs) So, so, yeah, in Chicago, there was this huge 
factory called the Pullman Palace Car Company that created railway cars, many different types, mostly passenger cars, and they actually invented the sleeper car. And at that time, the rail industry was huge and prolific, and so they're doing very well. So well, in fact, that they build a company town. Pullman created a town, the town of Pullman, within Chicago. It was entirely owned by the company. It included a bunch of row houses and other things, and the workers from that factory lived in that town. And it was run entirely by George Pullman, who was suddenly their boss and their landlord. The meatpacking industry was the same way. Yeah. They created like a town where their workers lived in. Yeah. And ev so everybody lived within a one mile radius of where they worked. Yeah. And it seems like, oh, what a what an elegant solution. But then it's like, well, now I've got this company running every single aspect of my life. And eventually that's going to go sour. And that's exactly what happened. So in 1893, there was a depression and it really hurt Pullman. And at the time, there was a dip in their sales, pretty serious dip in their sales. And so they were in a position where they needed to lay off a bunch of people. And then they also lowered wages on the people that they kept. And there were days, just like you said, in the meatpacking industry that people would show up to work and it would just say closed until further notice. And they're like, well, now I'm shit out of luck. What am I going to do? But they're living in the Pullman town, village. They're living there and paying rent to George Pullman. And even though the man knows that he has lowered their wages, he does not lower their rent. And in fact, sometimes raises it. And there's no democratic process in this town. There's no council that they can go to with issues that they have with anything. The town itself was not bad. It was nice brick row houses. It was pretty comfortable for the time. They had indoor plumbing and water. And so things were going pretty well until we hit 1893 and the company starts losing money and the quality of life for the workers is the first thing that's going to go out the window. And they had no democratic process that they could go through to try to get solutions to any of these problems that were coming up. So they're feeling the pinch. And they come to Pullman, a big group of them come to George Pullman and they say, these are the issues that we're having. We would like to talk to you about how we can solve some of these things. Mm -hmm. And he said, no, I don't want to. And as a matter of fact, you're all fired for coming to me with this. Nah, get lost. <laughs> get <laughs> exactly. lost, losers. <laughs> yeah. What? Uh, what do you mean you can't pay your rent? Your boss is paying you less money? Well, who's that? Oh, that's me? Well, can't help you. Sorry. I'm not going to change. Yeah. All right. I'm, I'm a billionaire. What do I know? Yeah. I realize that math doesn't add up and I don't give a shit. So move along because <laughs> there are plenty of people looking for jobs. And so he can fill those spots with ease. And that's exactly what he did. And so these workers are feeling very pinched, feeling very upset. And then in comes Eugene Debs, who was a member of the American Railway Union and a big proponent of unions and had helped organize within the American Railway Union a strike earlier that was able to get some demands met. And so he comes in and says, all right, let's get you guys signed up to this union, the American Railway Union. We already have a ton of rail workers all over the country that are involved with this. We can use the might of the union to get 
things turned around for you. And so they sign up about 30% of the workers right away and more over time. And so first of all, he's like, okay, we're going to do a strike. And so he tries to put that together and it just doesn't have the support and it gets shut down and Pullman fires everybody involved yet again. <sighs> yeah. Well, when you only have 30% of the people going on strike and you have that many people waiting outside for a job. Yeah. Not a lot of power. Yeah, he has no incentive to negotiate. Why Why would he? What yeah. good would it do him? And so they kind of regroup. They recruit more people. They get a larger thing going. And a second attempt is involved. And they go at it a little bit differently. They get the actual trains, the people servicing and running the trains involved in this strike. So mm. it's not just the people working in the Pullman factory. It's anybody who lays hands on a Pullman rail car down the line and says, we're boycotting this. Do not touch a train that has a Pullman car on it. And that was what did it because that ground the entire railway system west of Chicago to a halt. So suddenly people aren't getting their goods. People aren't able to go where they need to go. And that's what gets everyone's attention. And it happens in cities all over, hugely organized. It ends up at one point, 250,000 workers walked off their jobs Dang. across the country. Yeah, in 27 states. Wow. So this is a huge strike. And to think about just the logistics of that, there's no group email. <laughs> <laughs> how? How? There's, there's no Facebook group. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How, how are they getting that info out? But they did and they got it and... Suddenly, riots are breaking out all over the country. And Eugene Debs was like, hey, 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 we're not doing this violently. He's sending out all of these telegrams to everyone saying, chill out. We're not going to do this violently. We can do this peacefully. We have enough numbers to not make this violent. But of course, things are heated. People want the things that they want. And they don't want people standing in the way there. And then there are also people who were strike breakers who were coming in and filling in those positions of the striking workers. Oh, and so scam. the striking workers, yeah, were kicking their asses. So they're beating oh. up these poor people who have been like, hey, there's a job available. I'm going to take it because I need it. So I definitely feel for those poor people. But also they're like, hey, we're doing something here. Get out of the way. Mm -hmm. But these these riots turned crazy. They derailed locomotives. How? <laughs> it's like flipping cars, but on a way grander scale. <laughs> but a train. <laughs> yeah. So the next time someone wins a sports championship and their fans are flipping cars in the street, you just be like, chumps. <laughs> yeah, let's see you do it with a train. <laughs> <laughs> While you're malnourished in a depression in the late 1800s. <laughs> So, yeah, these people were not messing around. And so riots are happening all over the country. Buildings are set on fire. Trains are getting derailed. People were blocking tracks and standing in front of trains, blowing up bridges. It's very intense. And so eventually President Cleveland is pressured to intervene. So all of this is happening. It's getting violent and all over the country. So obviously President Cleveland is like, I got to do something about this. So the only recourse he had was that these riots were holding up the mail 
So she's like, well, that's my federal responsibility is to make sure that the mail runs. Hmm. So he and his administration had an injunction written in federal court to demand a stop to the strike because it was holding up the mail. And so, of course, the union was like, we're not going to follow that. Hmm. We're in the middle of something here. (laughs) And so Cleveland says, I'm going to send the army. And... The governor of Chicago actually was like, no, no, we've got this under control. And Cleveland's like, politically, I can't just sit here and wait for you guys to figure it out. I have to step in and do something. And so there was a real clash between the governor of Illinois and President Cleveland. But he was like, I'm doing it. I'm sending in the army. (laughs) So that's what he did. 12,000 army troops and thousands of U.S. marshals were deployed all over the country to stop these. And of course, that's not a peaceful situation. Oh, no. Yeah. They show up. The strikers know that they're coming. So they set up barricades, engage in fights. At one point, July 4th, they erected these huge barricades to prevent them from reaching the rail yards. And that turned into a huge clash where fires were lit and a bunch of property was destroyed. July 7th, the National Guardsmen were assaulted as they showed up to squash the strikers and they just opened fire into the mob, killing between four and 30 people. Which is a big spread, so <laughs> I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I think that early reports were four, but then historians have come back and been like, well, that was inaccurate for the sake of making it not look as bad as it was. And all said and done, it was $80 million in damages Jeez. in 1894. So <laughs> that's a lot of money. On July 11th in Sacramento, some strikers blew up a bridge, a trestle bridge, and a train was derailed and crashed into that blown up bridge and four soldiers were killed. And there was a general in the military at that time that had a memorial put up in San Francisco. I don't really know why San Francisco when it happened in Sacramento. But this guy, General Graham, had an obelisk built in a cemetery in San Francisco as tribute to those four troops. And the inscription says, murdered by strikers. And people were like, that seems like a bit much. And he was like, I don't give a shit. (laughs) He's not mincing words on that one. (laughs) No, he is not. And it's still there. So add that to the list because I'd like to check that out. Okay. Yeah. They get to the end of this. Obviously, the troops come in. It gets real violent, but they shut it down. The protests are squashed. And Eugene Debs was one of many who were arrested. And he ends up arrested and charged and convicted of conspiracy to obstruct the mail and disobeying an injunction. And he served six months in jail. There were many of the other leaders of the strikes that were arrested, and it just petered out. The only real thing that came from it is that the state of Illinois forced Pullman to sell off the residential holdings to the city of Chicago. Hmm. So they said, you owning the town that your workers live in seems like not a great idea, so why don't you sell those to us? And it's a neighborhood on the south side of Chicago now, Pullman neighborhood, Hmm. and um, Yeah, so that was the main thing that happened there. But then in the 50s, Pullman cars closed permanently, but they never really recovered. 
Yeah. After the strikes, even, they kind of limped along, staying in business, but eventually completely dissolved. But at the end of these strikes, four days after these strikes were ended, President Cleveland goes to Congress and says, all right, let's designate Labor Day as a federal holiday to honor this strike. You know, wink, wink, you know. <laughs> like, is, that, is that why we all get the day off? We're like a federally yeah. mandated strike? <laughs> a consolation prize for a massive strike that yield essentially no results. <laughs> Cool. Because Thanks, guys, for all your effort. I'm going to go on the lake and get drunk on White Claw. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The thing about it is that when it was designated a federal holiday, there were already 30 states that celebrated Labor Day and saw it as a holiday. So uh-huh. it had existed for a good amount of time. Actually, in, in 1882, the very first Labor Day celebration was in New York City. They had a parade, and that was in September 1882. And that was Kind of the first official celebration, but the first state to make it a state holiday was Oregon. And then it just kind of spread. And so there had already been talk about it being a federal holiday at this point. And 30 states celebrated it. So it becoming a federal holiday just officially gave federal employees the day off. (laughs) And so it was really... A consolation prize. It just feels that way to me. (laughs) And it was something that had existed in other countries for a long time and originated as a celebration in May. So May Day was what was celebrated. I think that that's still what's celebrated in the UK and across Europe as their recognition of workers and and unions and things is May Day. The reason the United States decided let's maybe go with not May is because May Day sort of fell on the time that the Haymarket riots happened in Chicago. In Chicago. <laughs> and so they're like, we don't want this to seem like a memorial of that event. Yeah. And so they're like, how about September? And so that's where that kind of came from. So the reason it's a federal holiday was Grover Cleveland kind of smoothing the waters after this huge unrest and big clash between the unions and the railways. And so that's why we've got Labor Day off. That's why federal employees have Labor Day off. We'll say that. (laughs) Yeah, right? Actually, the blue collar laborers don't have that day off. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's just, uh, you know, that's why your mail carrier is drunk in early September. Yeah. <laughs> is uh, as a, hey, we cool from Grover Cleveland. <laughs> well, that's really cool. I didn't know all that. I mean, I kind of, like you said in the beginning, I kind of knew it was something to do with giving the workers a day off and unions and whatever. But I didn't know all of that. Yeah. Was kind of the start of it. The history of labor strikes in this country is long and complicated and could probably be several episodes because there were just many huge strikes. But this just happens to be the one that was finally like, well, we'll push this into being a federal holiday now, even though it didn't really yield much. I mean, it got Pullman out of the landlord business, which is good. (laughs) What year were those riots? That was in 1894. 1894. So I wonder if there were any of the same elected officials 
that were in office during those riots that then when Upton Sinclair started his nonsense, he was like, oh, these freaking guys. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah, I would be interested to look more into why it is Chicago that has such a history of labor unrest because I'm sure these kinds of abuses and stuff were happening all over the country and yeah. in other big cities but the really marquee events turning point events seem to have happened in Chicago so that's interesting to me and it's something I might want to check out I'm going to be in Chicago next weekend so I'll ask around <laughs> I'm sure everybody will be very happy to tell me to tell you the the long history <laughs> <laughs> of the town they are currently in. <laughs> yeah. As Josh and I get a weekend away, I'm sure he would be very excited to spend it going to various museums. He actually would, but uh, our plan right now is to get drunk. <laughs> Labor Day! <laughs> <laughs> I want to learn about why. <laughs> yeah. Well, cool. Yeah, that's a so that's great that. story. Yeah. And speaking of Chicago, I'm going there this weekend. I was just there, Chicago and Milwaukee, because I did it. I ran my Tough mutter. Oh, cool. I know the listeners have been dying to know how that worked out for me. They've been on the edge of their seat. They had the date circled. Probably. <laughs> yeah. But I did it yesterday. I ran the Tough mutter. Everything hurts. <laughs> I'm sitting in this little closet cramped up and I just I'm, I'm going to go upstairs and take a bath because my, my muscles are very angry. That's a great but I idea. Did it. Yeah. My brother had a GoPro with him. And so we videoed all of the obstacles and us going over them. <laughs> so I can't wait to see some of that because there was one that was monkey bars and there were there was five feet of water underneath it. And I'm like, I just want to make it if I get to the third rung, then I'm fully over the water and I can safely plummet. And so like, that's my goal. I'm not trying to make it across this whole thing. I know that's not going to happen. And so I made it to the third rung and just, yeah, ate it and went into the water and they had a lifeguard there and I came up and she seemed very concerned with me. And I was like, no, no, I knew I was going to do that. I'm not, <laughs> I can swim. I just can't monkey bar. Don't worry. I'm fine. <laughs> Yeah, it was the, a good time. It was very The water silly. stuff I'm good at. The aerial stuff, not so much. <laughs> yeah, I can swim great. Upper body strength, no bueno. And no good. Very bad. Yeah, and there were there was a couple, there was one like beam thing. You had to hop over this beam and it was like chest high. And so I'm trying to jump up over this beam and just slamming my stomach into it. Oh. And then my legs are going straight out. And I'm like, and I'm like, I know I just need to fling my leg over but I can't and the the whole spirit of the thing is that everybody kind of helps each other out and there's this guy came up behind me because my brother's already over it and uh, this guy comes up behind me and he was like you need a hand I was like just grab my leg and throw it <laughs> <laughs> and he was like how about I give you a knee and he just got down on a knee and I stepped on his leg and went over it <laughs> and then I I stood up and I was like that was for Simone Biles <laughs> And Zach goes, what? And I was like, because I'm sure she looks exactly like that getting on the beam. I know that I looked exactly like her getting on the beam. And some random guy goes, I thought she was here, honestly. <laughs> so, I'm very excited to see what that actually looked like because the image in my mind is hilarious. 
it's just gonna be two hours of your red sweaty face (laughs) (laughs) yeah and there's the one you have to army crawl through and you get zapped and the guy watching it videoed for us while we both went through it and every time i got i got hit like six times and every time i was like i was like ugh. And I told Zach, I feel like I sounded like a dog getting kicked, like, yay! And he goes, no, it was a lot sadder. It was like, oh. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Why? I paid money for this. (laughs) Taking a perfectly good Saturday. (laughs) Yeah. It was ridiculous. We are ridiculous. I am very tired, but I'm glad I did it. I do feel very accomplished. Very cool. Yeah. So that's what I've been up to. And uh, I don't have a whole lot coming up. By the time this comes out, I am into the Limestone Comedy Festival. And that's going to be a great weekend. If you're anywhere around Bloomington, definitely come check it out. A lot of great comics. And I'm booking for the fall. So I'm sending out some things. Hopefully I'll get some more dates on the calendar. But Very what do you cool. guys have going on? Uh, still plugging away at TikTok videos, making some fun ones, trying to post those on Facebook. You can find us at Crimson Moon Farm and just anywhere. Any of yeah. the social medias, just go to Crimson Moon Farm and we'll pop up somewhere. Yeah. But yeah, if you want fun animal content, TikTok's the place to go. I try not yeah. to put my face on it too much because I'm not as cute as alpacas. <laughs> if the humidity's high enough, just as fuzzy. But <laughs> not as cute. <laughs> I think you're adorable. Oh, thanks, friend. <laughs> yeah, just kind of winding down the season and making fun videos. That's find great. Us, find us at crimsonmoonfarm.com, Crimson Moon Farm on Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, all the usual places. All right, great. We need to get some passing notes TikToks. Maybe we can record them separately. Put something together. Meh. We'll That's what out. I need. I need to get on another form of another. social media. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> I need well, a, a nice round 20 accounts. That's what I need. <laughs> <laughs> At least. Yeah. So, yeah, that's our show. I hope you reach out to us. I've been handing out stickers to people. If you want one and I haven't seen you in person, hit me up. I'll mail you one. I'll do that. So, yeah, definitely find us passing notes with Ashley and Shanda on Instagram and Facebook you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, at Shanda Sung. You can track me down. I'm pretty available. So I hope you reach out to us and tell us what you think and whether or not you're ever going to eat meat again after this episode. <laughs> <laughs> I'm making some lifestyle considerations after this, honestly. <laughs> so, yeah, we want to hear from you. Let us know what you think. And above all, just share this show with your best friend. Yes, indeed. As always, we'd like to thank my husband for his uh, editing and uh, (laughs) recording and uh, producing the show. (laughs) (laughs) He's the greatest. We want to thank you all for listening. Have a safe and happy Labor Day. For Shanda Sung, I am Ashley Morgan. Join us next time on Passing Notes with Ashley and Shanda. ASMR, just vocal fry. Uh, uh, (laughs) 
feel like I make fun of him in every single outro. Oh yeah, it's hard, it's hard to be genuine about someone you love. That seems like something we should talk to a therapist about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love you, you idiot. <laughs> you freaking dumb dumb. Love you so much.